turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, Sunday morning, studying the book of Philippians together. And uh, as we're turning there, if you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, just there are guys coming up the aisles with Bibles, just flag them, they'll get you one. And always good to hear the word, but then it's good to see it as well before our eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that uh, your own. Reminder as well, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we're studying currently the Gospel according to John, and uh, we'll be in Jesus' prayer in John 17 tonight. And each of you are invited to that as well. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, Brethren, follow, uh, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, you are a good Father, and we are thankful for that place that you have in our life, and how grateful we are for all of the things that you do for us. And we thank you that you are a mentor in our lives, if that's the word. You desire to speak to us. You don't give us the silent treatment or leave us to get banged up in the world and discover truth accidentally or as a result of great damage that has been done to us. But you speak clearly to us through your word, and we're glad to turn to it today. We pray that you would help us to listen today, not only to a sermon, but to endeavor to hear your voice in terms of the truth that is found within it. We pray that you would anoint our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to us this morning. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The central theme of the book of uh, Philippians is the theme of joy. And the single greatest threat to the joy uh, in the Christian lives of those that were in the church of Philippi was conflict or a division and disunity. And so Paul uses the bulk of the book, chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 4, to address that particular uh, situation in order to encourage them in unity, to encourage them uh, in the mind of Christ that is at the core of all uh, Christian unity. But there was a second subject, a second threat to their joy, uh, that he deals with in earnest in chapter 3. And when Epaphroditus came to bring the report to Paul in Rome of how the church was doing in Philippi, he also became aware that false teachers 
and false teaching was in danger of infiltrating uh, the church there uh, in Philippi. And so he addresses that subject and he's addressed it earlier in the letter and here he uh, returns to it in earnest in the passage we look at uh, this morning. In fact, it's it's, uh, central to the passage. You notice in verses 18 and 19 that Paul gives us a description of these false uh, teachers. It's interesting in reading uh, commentators related to this section of of, uh, Philippians that many of them are greatly frustrated at the fact that the Apostle Paul does not specifically identify what false teaching it was that he is addressing and, and that the church at Philippi uh, was was dealing with. I'm inclined to believe that uh, all of that was entirely deliberate on Paul's part, on the Holy Spirit's part, so that we can take and apply his instruction here, not merely to one area of error, but apply it to all false teaching and false teachers uh, that we may encounter as Christians. At the time in which Paul writes this letter, the uh, the body of Christ, Christians, uh, they were, there were three principal errors that were endeavoring to pollute Christianity. First, there were the Judaizers, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, those who came along and said uh, that Jesus' death upon the cross uh, did not constitute a full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins as Christians. He did not supply us with a finished salvation and that somehow we need to add to his work uh, our human effort or our good deeds in order to supplement some uh, lacking on, on his part and the idea that we're saved by trusting in Christ and then Uh, doing some good uh, work. They taught, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this includes any group of people that teaches that Jesus' finished work upon the cross is not enough, but that something else needs to be added to it in order to provide us with a, a finished salvation. The second group that were looking to pollute Christianity at the time was antinomianism, uh, or they're known as libertines, or uh, they're more commonly known uh, as the cheap grace crowd. And here is the person who claims to be a Christian, but believes that grace from God has released them from uh, observing uh, the moral law, even uh, the moral demands of scriptures. And so it's the person who claims to be a Christian and yet there is no moral difference, no ethical difference between them and any unsaved person uh, in, in the world who makes no claim to be a Christian at all. And so they think, I've put my faith in Jesus for salvation. I've received his forgiveness. I'm on my way to heaven. And I have no real concern for changing my ways or repenting of any sins and uh, living a changed life. I have no interest in achieving the holiness that Paul writes about, even as we looked at last week in, in, uh, in this chapter three and in, in growing uh, in that. And so they, they like Christianity 
um, theologically in many respects, but they, they, they refuse the ethical and the moral demands of Christianity. They do so in order to accommodate the practice of, of sin uh, within their, their lives. And when you look at their lives, you would never know that they were a, a Christian based upon their moral decisions or their practices. Oftentimes this group, and they are a big group, as all three of these groups are, uh, even yet today, though they operate under different names or no name at all. Um, and oftentimes they can actually view this kind of a life as being a good advertising for Christianity, that this is actually the way to draw unsaved people uh, to Christ. So it's an idea of, hey, everybody, look at my sin-dominated life as a Christian, and I'm not like all of those other Christians who take the moral demands of Christianity seriously, all those Christians that you don't like, and uh, see how cool and gracious and accepting God is, and don't you want to know and follow him uh, as well? But concerning becoming a Christian and then using God's grace as a, uh, a deliberate excuse for uh, living a life of sin, uh, we're not talking here about uh, Christians, those of us who are Christians, truly Christians, and there's a struggle against sin where sometimes we are successful, sometimes we are unsuccessful, but we learn, but there's a struggle. There's no struggle with these people. This is an abandonment uh, to their sin and the fact that, that this is uh, something that is uh, unbecoming to Christianity and not Christian at all. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, uh, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The third uh, dominant kind of false teaching at the time that Paul wrote this was uh, what is known as Gnosticism. And uh, in some respects, it's very um, uh, similar to the cheap grace uh, uh, group. Their name comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means uh, to know. And so they claim to have a secret knowledge, a deeper knowledge of Christianity than the average Christian did. And, uh, and they considered themselves to be a part of a deeper life club within Christianity. And uh, they kind of live their Christian life within, in their heads. And they claim to have this deep spiritual understanding. And one of the beliefs that they had is that the universe and the human body uh, are, were both evil. So the human body physically is evil, but the spirit of man, lowercase s, that is the intellect and the emotion of man, uh, that those things are good. Now this teaching of this compartmentalization of the body from the soul and from the intellect, it produced two very distinct groups within Gnosticism. One group that it, it produced was a group then that lived almost entirely for the, the denial of their fleshly appetites. It drove them into a life of asceticism. A second group, a far more 
populated group among uh, Gnosticism took the same truths and they gave themselves over to complete license related to sin, complete debauchery. They rationalized that since the spirit and the body were two uh, very distinct parts of, of a person and that the spirit was good and that the body could be nothing but bad, that one could engage in uh, any and all sin in the body and still could remain spiritual because the spiritual part of their life could uh, not be affected by the body. So they adhered to this idea that what we believe and how we live are two entirely uh, different things. They're unrelated uh, to one another. And so as long as you believe the right things, it didn't matter what kind of life uh, you lived. And so this is the ultimate in compartmentalization in terms of, uh, of, of anything. And it tended to produce Christians who believed all of the right things about God's truth, or a significant number of them, uh, but practically they lived a life that was completely contrary to those uh, beliefs. And so they ceased any struggle against sin. Uh, in fact, they, uh, this kind of a group can even reach the place where they consider their liberty this Christianity that they have uh, made up, uh, 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 this liberty to sin is a mark of superior spiritual maturity, that they've arrived at a superior spiritual state than the rest of us. Of course, the Bible knows nothing about this at all. Uh, Jesus himself declared in John chapter 14, verse 15, he said with absolute clarity, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's no compartmentalization, no dualism in that at all. In 1 John, the apostle John writes, and his first epistle is written uh, in, as a, a counter to Gnosticism in that day, and with uh, great clarity, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, he wrote, he who says, I know him, that is God, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, Paul's description of these uh, false teachers and teachings, it includes little bits and pieces as he describes them here uh, that belong to all three uh, of the groups. And uh, he begins the description, or I'll begin the description at least in verse 19, when he declares that their God is their belly. The belly represented uh, the uh, innermost being of a person. It represented the fleshly appetites of uh, fallen man, the fallen nature from Adam uh, and Eve. And so Paul is saying that they live their lives completely dominated by the appetites of uh, their flesh, their physical desires. They live to satisfy uh, those desires. And so uh, in the uh, popular way of saying it from the 1960s, if it feels good, do it. And that is what this uh, group operated uh, under. So they, they recognize no authority uh, that is above the authority of their, their fleshly appetites. And whether that 
and speaks of sexual immorality or lust or food or drunkenness or partying or hatred or violence or bitterness or gossip or slander or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It includes all of those, uh, those uh, appetites and those desires of the flesh. He says further in his description of them in verse 19 is that their glory is actually their shame. In other words, they glory in what they ought to be ashamed of. So they use grace as a, uh, an excuse to live a sinful life and uh, a sinful life always leads to a life of shame. Always. Whether it is the a regular run-of-the-mill way that we think about sin, that is sex, drug, rock and roll kind of sins, or whether they are religious sins, self-righteous uh, sins, the sins of pride, they always end up producing uh, shame within, uh, within our lives. And anything or any sin that we uh, explain away in the Word of God in order to partake in it, it will always result in shame uh, in our uh, lives. One of the things about God's Word, about His commands, when we keep those commands, they never result in a life of shame. I've walked with the Lord since 1980, and, and I've, I, I'm not proud of a lot of things about my life uh, in terms of, of growing in this Christian life. Don't think I've got bodies buried in the backyard. I'm just talking about falling short. But, but I have never, ever obeyed his commandments over all of those years and then walked away and say, uh, I'm ashamed of having done that or ever had it produce the slightest amount of shame in my life. There's nothing in the world that you can talk about um, in, in that way. What an amazing track record. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to uh, explore the tragic absence of shame in our Western culture and the devastating consequences of it upon people to destigmatize the most shameful activities and, and remove any sense of it when very often the shame associated with wrongdoing is what, is what causes me to face who and what I am and then to turn to God. God will never leave us in a life of shame, but oftentimes it's used to bring us to uh, to the Lord. And I do, I'm not surprised that if at the core of this erasure of shame within our culture uh, by the devil who is behind whoever, humanly speaking, does this thing, is that very purpose to keep people from seeing their need to come to Christ and needing our lives to be changed. He said further that Verse 19, that they set their minds on earthly things. They give no thought to heaven, no thought to eternity, no thought to a well done uh, from uh, G Jesus after this life. Every thought is given to this life, uh, to this citizenship, to the here and the now. And then uh, stunningly in verse 18, uh, Paul declares they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so whether it's the, the proud, self-righteous person 
who claims the cross of Christ to be insufficient, being an enemy of the cross of Christ, or whether you have the Gnostic or the, the, the libertine uh, uh, person who tramples underfoot the provision of the cross, not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but then to provide us with the power to live an entirely different kind of life than the life that we once lived that we've become a new creation. We're under new management in the management of the Holy Spirit and and the denial uh, of that and the holy life uh, that results. And so let that phrase, I think, of of the Apostle Paul impact uh, us concerning all of this, just as he intends it when he declares that this kind of person, this kind of false teaching, this kind of uh, a false teacher uh, is an enemy to the cross of Christ. And then he declares in verse 19, uh, their end is destruction. And it speaks about eternal judgment. And clearly Paul does not consider um, such people to be Christians uh, at all. Now the Apostle Paul, he describes them not in order to just merely inform us Uh, but in order that we might recognize that these are people to be avoided uh, or their influence needs to be avoided at all costs, regardless of what name they operate under today or no name that they operate under uh, even today, just as they have uh, throughout uh, even church history. And all of these errors... They run rampant today, along with many others in terms of what it is that, uh, in terms of what claims to represent Christ and Christianity in the world uh, today. And Paul warns us, you notice that there are many such people. They're not a few. They're not a silent uh, majority. The problem is widespread. And the point he's wanting to make for us uh, here is the recognition that every single one of us as Christians, we have to live our Christian life in this context. We live in our Christian life in the context of a great deal of spiritual error and false teachers and false teaching that desires constantly to pull us uh, into Uh, their orbit. And sometimes they can be not just somebody on social media or not someone who's so far away as to be on uh, television, but sometimes they can be neighbors and they can be fellow workers and they can be fellow students or relatives or parents or children or siblings and, and people that we care about, people that we Uh, love, but I am not to make them an example or a pattern for in my life for morality or uh, spiritually. And the Apostle Paul says it here. He says, "It, it brings me no joy to bring this up. I mean, we're talking about having a perfectly fine letter and I have to bring this up. But it needed to be brought up and he did. Everyone would like to talk about other things than these kind of things. 
but they need to be spoken about because that's the spiritual environment. I don't say Christian environment, the spiritual environment that we all live our Christian lives in, in this, uh, this world. But Paul doesn't leave us with just the description of them. He then surrounds this description with, by providing us with two important defenses against all of this in our spiritual lives. And the first defense he gives us is in verse 17, uh, where he encourages us and exhorts us to be wise and to be careful about who we make our examples in the Christian life. Uh, who it is that we pattern our Christian lives uh, after. And the Apostle Paul then offers himself as a person who it can be safely used by Christians then and now as an example and as a pattern for uh, the Christian life. And, uh, and always, of course, the Apostle Paul uh, could speak of himself, but, but specifically concerning what he had already taught in verses 1 through 16. Let me be your example in rejecting all self-righteous religion as refuse, as uh, dung, any thought that I can improve upon the finished work uh, of, of Christ based upon my own human effort. And then the zeal that he spoke of with which he sought to continually grow spiritually uh, 25 and 30 years into his Christian life and then his uh, un- ceaseless commitment to what God had called him to be and do in church history uh, individually as a, a person and as an apostle. And why in the world did the Apostle Paul, why was he an example that was uh, worthy of emulating or following? Because he made Jesus his example and his pattern in life. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the qualifier related to this or any pattern or any example in our, our lives. Now, someone might look at this thing with Paul, and some do, uh, look at this thing where Paul commends himself as an example or a pattern for the Christian life, and they think it smells of, of spiritual pride. That would be completely unfair to the apostle uh, Paul here, because he readily, in verse 17, calls upon them to also Uh, look at others who are in the same place that could be safely used. He didn't say, I'm the only one. Be safely used in an example and and as a, a, a pattern for maturity. He had already earlier in the chapter had spoken of the fact that he did not consider himself to be perfected or that he had uh, attained, but he was growing into all of this as every Christian uh, does. And he doesn't command them to do this. Uh, he extends the offer, the invitation. He uses the word brethren or sister in two is, can be used there and, and invites them uh, to, to do so. I want us to notice it, three specific words in verses 17 and 18 that are important related to all of this. The first word in verse 17 is the word example. 
And, and here you have the recognition that anyone that desires to grow toward maturity in any area of life, anyone who has the remotest hope of excelling in any area of life needs to follow good examples, uh, whether in education or career or in the Christian life. And I think that many of us, if not all of us, learn best by watching an example, by watching someone who is much further along in terms of maturity in whatever field it might be in, in our lives and much further along in terms of their expertise than us in some area in which we hope to excel as well. And whether it is a auto mechanic, uh, who is learning how to use some new sophisticated piece of uh, diagnostic equipment that he's never used before, or he is faced now with a very complex uh, repair uh, on, uh, on a car that he's never done before, for him to be able to watch a skilled mechanic do it provides uh, invaluable instruction. And you take that anywhere we want to take that uh, in life. It applies to everything. It's the same for the surgeon. It's the same thing for the computer tech. It's the same thing for every athlete that excels in the entire world. It is the same for marriage. It is the same for parenting. And to just stop and think in our own minds here this morning, think about the sheer amount of what you know in life that you learn by example. It is a mountain of what we have learned in life by watching the example of other people. So that speaks to how important it is to make sure that our examples are worthy of being examples within our lives. And nowhere is it more important uh, than in the area of, of spirituality. And the blessing, what a blessing it is to be able to watch other Christians who are more mature than us, or they are more advanced than us in particular areas of their Christian life, and to be able to watch their life, to watch their example. And when we make people like that patterns in our life, uh, the Christian life becomes a continual aha moment. And we look at it and we go, that's how you handle that situation. That's what you say in that situation. And then for people like me, that's what you don't say in that situation. Or that's what you do or you don't do. And the lights are always going on when we've got the right examples in our life spiritually. The second word that he uses here is the word pattern in verse 17. And here is the recognition that every single Christian needs a pattern in our life. And so you have in the same way that a seamstress needs a pattern in making a garment that is going to end up being valuable uh, in the end, something someone can wear, so too each of us needs a pattern for our lives in order that our spiritual life uh, can be valuable and growing in, in value all the way to the end. The third word that he uses is in verse 18, and that it is the word walk. And here's the recognition 
that whoever we make our examples and patterns in life, they're leading us somewhere. They're leading us to a destination. They're leading us uh, to an end. And to then examine any Christian's life that we're making a pattern or we're making an example uh, in our lives to examine their Christian life and to see how well it wears over the long term. And to look at it and say, that's something that I want for my own life. That's the kind of Christian character that, that I want, uh, want to have and the quality of Christian life uh, that, uh, that they have or to recognize that, no, I don't want to end up where they are. Uh, I want to end up in a, in a completely superior place than, than the pattern that they're putting before me. And because if I make them an example or a pattern for my spiritual life, I'm joining them on a path. And, and, I, and, that, and paths lead uh, somewhere. And so to follow only those examples who stir us to excellence in our Christian lives. Doesn't mean that we don't like other people, doesn't mean that we don't have relationships with other people, and lots of them, but we don't make everyone our example and a pattern for our spiritual lives. Now, again, concerning this idea that somehow Paul is um, exhibiting some kind of arrogance in putting himself forward as an example or, or a, a, as a, a, a pattern, and then somehow that's unbecoming of a Christian. Uh, I would look at that and say, this is no time for false humility. That doesn't help anybody. Uh, every Christian, we should be able to say that very thing about ourselves. Follow me as an example. Follow me as a pattern. And these ideas of taking a passage like this and then trying to pick on the Apostle Paul and accuse him of pride, it simply obscures the point that's being made. And it keeps us from facing the point that's being made here. And that is that my life, instead of trying to find fault with Paul, would be better spent on examining my own life to see if I could make the same statement to others that are around me in terms of my own uh, Christian life. And so we don't want to leave this passage just thanking God for the example and the pattern that the Apostle Paul is in our Christian lives, but then to further ask ourselves whether we could extend that invitation to others as well. And if we can't, in all honesty, then to ask ourselves what needs to be changed in my life so that I can make that invitation to other people as well. So my life can be to other people what these lives are to me. Now the second defense, and we close with this in verses 20 and 21, the second defense against this kind of false teaching and false uh, teachers uh, is the encouragement to remember our heavenly citizenship. And so in verse 20, he says, we're to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. And he's saying that that citizenship is to dominate our lives uh, as Christians, as we live our lives in this world. 
the, the reminder that we are strangers, that we are pilgrims, that we are people who have dual citizen, uh, citizenship, and that we are ambassadors in this world uh, for that, that kingdom in, in, in heaven and, and representing it here on the earth. And so all of our priorities in life, all of our decisions in life, our goals in life, they should be very different from the individual that he's talking about here and, and telling us to steer clear of, very different from those who are solely citizens of this world. And it's not a bad thing uh, to live that kind of life and to give that kind of preeminence to my heavenly uh, citizenship. And it's a sure way to avoid the influence of those that Paul again described earlier in verse 19 as those who set their mind on earthly uh, things. And so he tells us that we're to remember our heavenly citizen and citizenship. And then in verse 20, he says, we're to be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus at the rapture of the church. And so as the world uh, gets worse and worse, and, and uh, when it gets worse and worse, because more and more people openly identify themselves as enemies of the cross uh, of Christ, because more and more people live solely to satisfy the base appetites of their flesh, more and more people whose minds are set entirely on this world give absolutely no thought to life after this one, no thought to eternity, the easier it gets uh, to remember that our supreme uh, citizenship is our heavenly uh, citizenship. It's a package deal. Sometimes I want to have this longing for Jesus' return and, and to, uh, for his church, but I want the world to be humming right along. Uh, at the same time, I want the best of both worlds, but so often it's because this world begins to disappoint that then creates this hunger and this desire for the return uh, of our Savior and then moving on uh, in, into heaven. And so uh, oftentimes it's because we don't like the condition of the world, we don't like how it calls good evil and evil good, uh, but if it does nothing else in us, uh, it makes us long for Jesus' uh, return. And if the condition of the world does not take me all the way to Maranatha, all the way to even so come quickly, uh, Lord Jesus, then the condition of the world hasn't done its job in my life. If it hasn't produced this eager expectation, then I'm not allowing the condition of the world to do its full work in me. In other words, for us as Christians in this world, it can never end with just complaining about the world. It always has to move beyond that to then producing that Maranatha in our heart. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Additionally, this focus on uh, Jesus' return at the time of the rapture of the church, it produces a very needed influence for purity 
in our lives. Because we, when Jesus returns in that, that moment, that twinkling of an eye, we want to be found in a good situation, in a good state. And so it has that, that influence in our lives. John, Apostle John writing, again related to, to this, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him uh, purifies himself uh, just as He, that is Jesus, is pure. In verse 21, uh, there is this longing that he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And at that moment of the rapture of the church, that, uh, how um, uh, ill-directed, should I say, or foolish, we will uh, feel for um, any uh, uh, of, of the things that the appetites that we've given ourselves to in this fallen world and and, uh, making that as a pattern in our life will appear uh, by comparison. In verse 21, uh, it will be uh, this return of Jesus. It'll be a part of Jesus subduing all things to himself. Paul says one day he's going to subdue all things to himself. All of these false teachers, all of this false doctrine, that's going on, uh, even these bodies of ours that are from Adam and Eve and are breaking down and they're, and they're falling uh, uh, apart, uh, everything is going to ultimately be subdued. Even the many of those, is, as he mentioned, who, who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's Paul's way of saying everything's under control. Everything is under God's control. And, and don't let the, the present appearance in the world ever convince us of anything uh, different. I think one of the things that when you read about the Apostle Paul and become familiar with him through, uh, through his epistles, you can't help but uh, come to see what a tremendous encouragement the prospect of heaven was to him. Allow me to read uh, some verses to you. I know it's at a point in the sermon where concentrating on verses can be a little bit difficult, but it'll be worthwhile. He wrote in this regard in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, to us, if, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your hand, uh, mind rather, on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And it isn't just the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. You take it over to the Apostle uh, Peter as he began his first epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims, the reminder that we're pilgrims in this world, headed toward heaven, headed toward the fullness of that citizenship. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia. Elsewhere in that first epistle, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then in his second epistle, he writes, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then to just stop under the influence of just seven verses in this regard in the New Testament, to ask ourselves this morning, what impact does the thought of heaven have upon me and upon my Christian life? In other words, Paul's reminder here, his encouragement concerning heaven here, can only means something to us if heaven means something to us. And so maybe this morning, some of us are in a place where there's that needed reminder related to heaven because the circumstances of our present life are so um, gigantic in terms of using up all of the oxygen in the room or all the oxygen in our life that there needs to be that, uh, that reminder uh, of this because heaven's been pushed to a, a back burner. And then there's perhaps some of us here this morning, and you might say, you know, if I was to be absolutely honest about it and open about it, the thought of heaven has never had much of an impact upon me at all or upon my Christian life. It clearly has nothing near the effect in my life that it clearly had upon the Apostle Paul and upon the Apostle Peter and upon the early church. But I want it to. I want it to. I want that to be a part of my life so that I don't just read these verses from a distance for the rest of my Christian life, but so that I can understand and feel exactly what they understand and feel by virtue of this hope that they have. And then to just pray to God who loves us, he's for us, and to ask God, would you produce that fondness and that eagerness for heaven in my life? Because clearly, I can't produce it on my own. And he will do that 
because we're asking in accordance to his will and what we ask in accordance to his will he hears us and we have the petitions that we ask uh, of him and it's important that God does this in our lives because along with being wise about who I make my examples and patterns in life it is a fond remembrance and expectation of heaven of our heavenly citizenship that's a key defense against falling prey to uh, false doctrine, spiritual error, and living uh, as they try to suck us into for the here and now without a thought in terms of uh, life beyond this world. So in the vein of, of joy, uh, this passage of Philippians teaches us first that joy is intimately tied in the Christian life to who we make our spiritual examples and patterns. And then second, that our joy is intimately tied to the reminder of our heavenly citizenship. And keeping that citizenship, that heavenly citizenship, above all other citizenships in the world where all other citizenships will become a consistent cause for disappointment in our lives, and worse, the recognition that this citizenship will never do that within our lives. And so as needed today, and I would say it today, to do it today as needed, to take just a little time to examine our spiritual examples and patterns in life, including our Christian ones, and, and for their worthiness to hold that kind of a place of influence within my life, and then as needed to make changes about who I make my influences and my example and my patterns. And sometimes it can be somebody that we know and we respect in a church. Sometimes it can be in our families, sometimes not. Sometimes it can be in our contact with uh, Christians in the workplace or wherever we might run into them. Sometimes this very thing happens in terms of at a distance in terms of uh, quality books that are written. I, I, have, I have read um, almost all of the biographies, all that I know of, concerning great men and women that God has used in the past, and to use them now as, as an example. One of the great things about making that an influence as an example in our lives is they're dead. So often they're dead, especially the old ones. Uh, Christian pastors have a joke about commentaries and, and uh, Christian biography, and, and the joke is, if they ain't dead, they ain't read. Because then you know how it ends. They ran it all the way through, all the way to the end. They can mess it up now. And, and so much of that is available to us in that way. But the good examples, the worthy examples are there, it's just a matter of finding them if we have set our sights far too low in our Christian life. And then today to examine our lives to determine if our joy in life 
is tied more to the quality of our earthly citizenship as opposed to our heavenly citizenship and is needed to ask God to reverse that to where our earthly citizenship has no effect upon our joy, uh, but uh, that the citizenship of heaven will have the same kind of place in our lives that it had in the apostles' uh, life. And we think about how much joy uh, evaporates out of our life because we have elevated this one citizenship of wherever we live in the world above the heavenly citizenship. And it causes more anger, it causes more frustration. It, 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 it saps me uh, of, of joy than ever the, my heavenly citizenship produces joy within me. And that's something that has to flip if joy is going to be a constant in our lives as Christians in the way that it was in the Apostle Paul's life and the way that God attends, intends for each of us. Very, very simple applications, but they are vital to our joy and worthy of extended time as they would apply to us today in terms of the quality of our Christian life, even beyond our time spent together in this room this morning. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, your word, you tell us that there's nothing new under the sun. And what was truth and what was important for your people to hear in the Old Testament, into the New Testament, 2,000 years ago and today, is the same thing. We do see the world all around us. We see the advances in technology. We see all of these kind of things that make our generation very different materially and technologically. But when we read a passage like this, or really any passage in your Bible, we realize that we haven't changed, not one bit. And we still need to hear the same things. They still need to have the same needed impact within our lives. And we pray that you take these truths that we've looked at today and bring them to the full needed influence and impact in each one of our lives. Not only that our joy would be consistent, the joy that you want us to have in our Christian life, but that our lives might be as fruitful as you desire them to be as well. We commend our lives to the work of your Holy Spirit through the word that we've looked at today. Again, may it have a full and, and complete work for where we are right now in our walk with you. And we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, God not only wants to make you a part of His kingdom, but He wants to, even more importantly, make you a part of His family.